This podcast is sponsored by GCK Consulting, a next generation political consulting firm. From fundraising to polling to campaign strategy, GCK is helping get millennials elected all across the country. To learn more about GCK and their services, just go to gckconsults.com. Again, that's gckconsults.com. All right, now to the podcast. Welcome to the Millennial Politics Podcast. I'm your host, Jordan Valerie. My pronouns are she, her, hers. And today I'm joined by Vermont House Representative Emily Kornheiser. Thanks for coming on and congrats on winning your election. Thank you, Jordan. Great to be here. Yeah, of course. So could you tell us a little bit about what inspired you to run and what your experience was on the campaign? Well, I have always loved government. I know that's sort of a strange thing to say, but I've seen it as something that brings us all together. It's why we organize. It's how civilization happened. Ideally, government is the collection of our best thoughts, our best ideas, and our collective action. And so I've always wanted to work in government. Um, There was a period where I thought I wanted to work in the Census Bureau inside a bureaucratic mine. But um, living in Vermont and really feeling so deeply connected to my community and the conversations that happen in my community. I realized that the best place to make real change was here in Vermont, in the Vermont legislature, and how possible that is here. And what were those conversations going on in your community? Well, Vermont, in some ways, has a lot of the same conversations that any other rural community across America has right now. We have huge income disparity. We have a lot of folks struggling to make a living wage. We have an opiate problem. I don't like to call it an epidemic. We have just a lot of people who are trying really hard to make ends meet and a lot of people who are not clear on what their identity or their community is in these changing times. And then at the same time, Vermont has this, you know, sort of national story about itself um, that I think we're the leader on all these progressive issues. We're the home of Bernie Sanders. We had gay marriage very early on. It's a place where people can live, move, and get back to the land, know their neighbors. And in my own community, we're constantly talking about the disparity between those two conversations, Um, whether that was doing community organizing with Rights and Democracy, which is our local Our, Our Revolution chapter, or whether that was when I was working for the state of Vermont, trying to bring together parents of young children to improve the community for them. But in each of those places, we just kept on coming up against both deep income disparities and how little time and space people have to get involved. I come from sort of a childhood with a decent amount of privilege. I grew up in suburban New York. Being a Jewish American really always felt like I had a right as a woman to get my voice into the room. I was raised to argue with people. And so taking all that privilege, I realized that I had the opportunity here in Vermont to help my neighbors become more active in their own communities and to help them see that they have a right to speak to. So it was that sort of combination of different things that brought me to run this year. And what was your experience like on the campaign? What did it teach you going into becoming an actual legislator? I had spent a lot of time in the state house with various jobs that I'd had working statewide. Vermont has a citizen legislature, only in session for about five months of the year, four days a week don't have paid staff. We don't have any staff at all. 
some of the folks in the legislature have other jobs. I have another job so that I can pay my mortgage. Some folks are retired. Most of the information that comes to the legislature on a day-to-day basis is from advocates and lobbyists because we have no staff. And so when I spent time in the legislature, I was so aware of how important it is to have people who are willing and able to break frames open to understand um, how something's being explained and to know that truth often lies in sort of the middle road between multiple realities. And so I knew that I wanted to be in the legislature because I'm great at asking questions that help people understand multiple perspectives, understand a new perspective on an issue. Was very much not looking forward to campaigning. And because it sounded to me just like a popularity contest and really fake. But then I started campaigning and I realized how beautiful it can be. I, because Vermont's so small, it was possible for me to knock on every door in my district personally. I knocked on a few thousand doors and had all of these individual conversations. And because it was easier most of the time to go on foot, that's what I did. And so I was walking up and down these long dirt roads middle of the summer, there's wildflowers blooming everywhere. I'm sitting on people's doorsteps together and just hearing about their lives. And I realized that while I originally thought that door knocking and campaigning and all of it was so that I could sell myself to people or so that people could understand me as a legislator, the more important part was that it was an opportunity for me to get to know my own community in a really granular way. And so that I can bring those turns in the road And stories that people told me in their doorways, I can bring all of that with me when I go to Montpelier. And for me, that was the most beautiful, transformative part of this whole process. Going into this legislative session, what are your legislative priorities and goals? Well, I think it's really important that we, you know, get it together and pass paid family medical leave and a $15 minimum wage. Um, That sort of goes without saying for me. But it's not enough at all. We have... um, $15 isn't actually a living wage in Vermont. Um, You really need somewhere between $19 and $21 an hour in order to pay rent. And part of that is that we have a housing crisis. So it's really interested in us looking at how um, our taxation structure lines up with our housing markets and how we have a spectrum between public housing and affordable housing and market housing that leaves huge gaps So that we have so many folks, not only who are living without housing, but also just are incredibly housing unstable, paying, you know, more than 50% of their income to stay in substandard housing, hemorrhaging dollars because of um, how expensive it is to heat old houses in Vermont. And so really interested in looking at how housing and taxation lines up. Um, And part of that is looking at how our tourism market feeds into that because Vermont has so many second homes and so many people who are coming up here just for a few weeks of the year. And then my other priority is healthcare. And I don't know what that looks like. I think a lot of it will depend on if our national Congress can move something forward. That would certainly be easier. Um, Federal spending is a much more fluid thing than state spending. But healthcare is the other really big issue that I think... um, affects all Vermonters. And it was the issue that I heard about most on the campaign trail. And your state, pretty interestingly, is the only state that really had an effort to implement single payer. Actually, after Obamacare was passed, that effort was killed by the Democratic governor at the time. Could you tell us a little bit about that? 
Yeah, it's really interesting. So we actually have universal health care in law right now in Vermont. You know, we're starting to call it Medicare for all because that's the national language around it. Um, but it's in law in Vermont and it passed under a Democratic House and a Democratic governor. And the first phase of it really lined up with the Affordable Care Act. And so in statute, the first phase was really to just make us um, in line, mostly technologically with the Affordable Care Act. And then different pieces were supposed to fall into place after that. Unfortunately, there was no explicit funding source attached to the law, which is something that happens in Vermont very, very regularly. And so it was easy and sort of possible um, in politics to just say, you know, we've now run our 16th study and this isn't financially feasible after all. And I have not had the chance yet to get to the bottom of what that actually means and why it was thrown out. Everyone has a different story about why he did it. It was the number one issue that he ran on. He's not in office anymore. We have a Republican governor now. But there's certainly will from really all corners to do something about this issue. And we do have a head start because we already have it in law. We just need to find the funding for it. It's pretty exciting. Um, one of the things that's especially interesting to me about doing any kind of either economic community development or um, the kind of sort of family friendly laws that we think about, whether that's Medicare for all or um, paid family medical leave, is that Vermont is almost entirely, um, most employees in Vermont are employed by small businesses. And generally, when you're passing large laws like this, um, nationally, we have exemptions for small businesses for these things, because small businesses always talk about how hard it is to implement um, these kinds of protections, because their financial flexibility is much less than a large corporation. But in a state where the majority of Vermonters are employed by a small business, we have to find solutions that s serve those folks and serve those employers first, if we're going to really make headway on improving everyone's lives. And so I'm really interested in how much small businesses are paying right now towards healthcare costs, whether that's the individual owner or whether that's a cooperative. Because their bargaining power is so much less as a small unit, they are hemorrhaging dollars. And so that money can very easily go into a central pot um, for a little bit less money. And that would be a great first step in funding this initiative. Before we dig deeper into healthcare, I'd like to address the Republican governor you mentioned. Phil Scott defeated his Democratic opponent, who could have become America's first openly transgender governor, by nearly 15 points, even as other statewide Democratic slash progressive party candidates won by large margins as well. How did Phil Scott pull that off? Um, there's a lot of stories, and I'm not going to be able to give you a definite answer on that. I still don't know how we have the president that we have. But first of all, Vermont um, has a long history of always re-electing the incumbent governor. Everyone always stays for more than the two years. We have two-year terms for governors, and our governors always get a second term. That's just Vermont tradition, and Vermonters really care about their traditions. And then the other piece is that when you're governor or lieutenant governor, whatever office you're sitting in, you have a s opportunity to have a real statewide presence and voice 
um, and framing in a way that very few other people in the state have. The third thing is that Vermonters really value balance and sort of common sense politics. So as our legislature moves further left, um, I hear from a lot of Vermonters that having Republican governors and they check on things, it will help us sort of stay balanced. And so those are sort of the three most popular narratives about why Scott won. And I think those three narratives about why Scott won are why the original primary on the Democratic side had so few people with a statewide presence stepping up because there was an assumption by the party, by um, more well-known members of the party, that no one could beat Scott this year. And so because of that, we have very few people with political experience entering the race. We had very few people with political experience even working on the campaigns that were on the left. Christine Hallquist got a really late start. Um, she was a brand new person. No one knew her name before she started. She did not get the kind of um, fundraising dollars in that I think a lot of other candidates who are more established could have or who had been working longer could have. And so she wasn't able to make it everywhere. She didn't have the level of TV ads. The Republican Governors Association funded Scott's TV ads. So there's a lot of things there. And then, you know, transphobia and misogyny are very real and alive things in American politics. And so I don't want to understate um, the significant effects of people's, you know, greater comfort in voting for a man in a suit. A lot of the progressive statewide candidates that had those huge margins were also white men. And how will having a Republican governor impact progressive policy? <laughs> um, considerably, of course. Um, so in the last session, um, paid family medical leave and $15 minimum wage both passed through the legislature and were vetoed by the governor. We also have seen some real, real pushes um, around privatizing our schools, about shrinking our school funding, um, some real anti-union laws coming from the governor's office. And so, for one, it creates a reactivity and defensiveness on, the, on behalf of the legislature, which keeps us from being able to really think forward and out and up. And then there's the fact that if we are going to have a veto override, which hypothetically we have enough folks in the legislature to do this year, even though we didn't last year. There's only so many times you can do that effectively. And there's only so many times you're going to be able to bring all the different members of your delegation and your caucus um, into that kind of fight. The left in Vermont, as all over the country, is really, really diverse. Um, you have some people who ran um, as D's slash R's. I don't really know what that means. We certainly have a few members who identify that way. And then we have people who um, are so far into the P progressive. You know, we have a progressive party here in Vermont. And so we have folks who are so far that way that often um, a compromised bill they won't vote on because they consider it too far a compromise. And so getting, you know, the great big tent of the Democrats, both the sort of corporate pro-business Democrats and the um, more community and economic development Democrats into the same 
conversation for a veto override is not something that the speaker can necessarily pull out once a week. And so we're going to be have to be really careful about which pieces of legislation we want to move that fight forward on. And where would you say you stand on that kind of democratic progressive spectrum? And how are you going to approach this dynamic in the legislature? Um, I would say that I am probably one of the further left members. Um, I consider myself a Democrat first and a progressive second, because I believe really strongly in investing in existing institutions and reforming them from within, rather than creating new institutions. But I worked in public-private partnerships for a very long time and really enjoy opportunities to bring people across a diverse spectrum of ideas together to say, none of us have to be right or righteous if we all can agree on sort of the common end that we're seeking. So if we all want a vibrant Vermont, if we all want, you know, safe communities, whatever it is, we might be able to agree that we might have four different ways of getting there. And one might be, you know, the Republicans way of getting there. And one might be the, you know, big P progressives way of getting there. But as long as we're all working towards that same goal, and we're not canceling each other out, compromise is possible. And so I think of myself as a very um, sort of efficient, common sense member of the far left. I have very little righteousness in my soul. I really just want to improve the amazing community that I live in. And I think that sort of democratic socialist economic ideas are the way to do that. And what does democratic socialism actually mean to you? Oh, that's a good question. And I was trying to decide if I even wanted to use that phrase. Um, It means that we understand that the dollars that we pay in taxes or that we raise via fines, um, that the public good is good for all of us, that regulation should serve communities and often the most both the most marginalized members of a community and um, the majority in a community. It means that government is for us and by us and should serve us. And sometimes that's in direct oppositions to corporate interests. It means using, um, it means using the resources of our community for all of us in a way that's controlled by all of us. I strongly believe that the more, um, community control we have over our resources, the more free time folks have, the more stability people have in their lives, the more vibrant an entire community becomes. And so whether that is um, something like bike paths or something like universal health care, by helping one portion of our community, we're helping all of us. And I think Vermont is a community that can actually um, feel that viscerally in a way some other parts of our country maybe can't yet. So we can serve as a, um, you know, a shining star for the rest of the country as we experiment with our, you know, small, nimble little state. 
Hey everyone, I'm Nathan. And I'm Dylan. And as you know, Millennial Politics is totally independent and volunteer run. That means every podcast you listen to, every article you read, and every tweet you see is created by a dedicated team of volunteers. It also means that we can say what we want to say when we want to say it, but we rely on listeners just like you to support our work. We hope you'll consider supporting us by subscribing at patreon.com slash millenpolitics. Every dollar will go directly towards our mission of shining a spotlight on progressive candidates, causes, and organizations. And if you subscribe at the ambassador level or more, we'll send you a free copy of How Our Government Really Works Despite What They Say. It's an award-winning book about the intricacies of American government, and you'll get to join our exclusive ambassador Slack channel and get to hang out with us all day, every day. I pretty much live there. So if that appeals to you, come join us. And we want to give a very special shout out to our executive producer, Greg Stevens, and our producers, Brad Tracy and Renee Garcia-Brown. Again, if you want to continue hearing interviews and conversations just like this one, we hope you'll visit patreon.com slash millenpolitics. That's patreon.com slash M-I-L-L-E-N politics and join the movement. All right, now back to the show. On the federal level, we've seen recently Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez spark this huge discussion about taxation. Uh, What are your thoughts on what fair taxation actually means, as well as how to implement it on a statewide level? It is so hard to implement um, fair taxation on a statewide level, especially a state like Vermont. If I was in New York or California, I would have completely different schemes. We have very few ultra-rich in Vermont, and because of that, it doesn't, even if, even when we increase the tax ratio that those folks are paying, because it's such a small part of the population, it creates a fairly unstable income source, revenue source, um, which makes a lot of people very nervous, and I think for good reason in some ways. I think we absolutely need to significantly um, change tax law to make it more progressive. And I think that goes without saying for a lot of members of my caucus. But in terms of fixing the significant revenue challenge that we've had in this state for the last 20 years, as the feds have devolved activities and solutions to the states, but have not devolved funding to the states, just Fixing our taxation structure is not necessarily going to do that um, on the income side. So we need to look at capital gains in a different way. And we also, I think, need to look at how we use property taxes. A lot of Vermonters believe they have really, really high property taxes. And we certainly do as compared to some other states. As I said, I grew up in the New York area. Property taxes are even higher there than they are here. Uh, but people had a much, much higher ability to pay them. And so what we do have in Vermont is a whole lot of second homes or fourth homes or, in any case, homes that sit vacant. But right now, they're taxed at the exact same rate as a home that's being used as a rental unit. And I think we need to divide those off and see um, what we see as the lost value to a community of having a home sitting vacant and make sure that we're taxing that property accordingly. And that would be a more stable source of income than either capital gains or a higher income tax on the ultra-rich here. Looking at another big issue that Vermont progressives are prioritizing, criminal justice 
Uh, what platform do you take there? I think we need to first, well, not first, but one of the key things we need to do is stop shipping our prisoners out of state. Um, we need to make sure that if folks are incarcerated, they're incarcerated with, you know, close to their families and communities. We need to release a lot more people. We have a lot of Vermonters who are really aging in our prison system right now. And we have a lot of people who are eligible for relief, um, whether that's early release or um, supervised release into their communities, but they are not able to find housing. And so a lot of the reason that we have as many folks incarcerated in Vermont right now is actually due more to our housing crisis and less to our court system, which I think is a very interesting problem. Um, I think we need to significantly increase how we're using restorative justice in our communities and make sure that options for restorative justice are being offered equitably to folks who are, um, you know, longtime Vermonters and then folks who are just coming here from out of state. I know that that's one of the reasons for some of the racial disparity in our prison system. We need significant implicit bias training and not just training, but checks and balances in place to make sure that people are being coached throughout their time after their training and that there are checks and balances in place to make sure that people are making change. And that's not just for our police force and our troopers. That's also for our judges and our advocates and our attorneys and our public defenders and everyone involved in the whole system. And then we also just need a few more people. Um, we have our court systems are really over full so that people, um, both our prosecutors and our defenders don't have the time that they need to do the self examination and the examination of their cases to make, to make the most strategic decisions on behalf or the most compassionate decisions on behalf of the people that they serve. And so certainly a few more dollars in the system would go far towards relieving some of the bias there as well. And what are your thoughts on the proposals of police and prison abolition? I think we can get really, really close to that in Vermont. Um, the bulk of our the folks in our prisons are aging in place. We know that people are people's propensity for violence goes down significantly once they're over to the age of 30. Um, we know that after a few years, there's very little, you know, very little effect increased effect of incarcerating people, um, that more than a year sentence is not necessarily any more of a deterrent for people's behavior, and that we know that treatment is often the best option. The majority of the folks in our prison would be much better served by our mental health system, and we know that, and we are still not able or willing to invest the dollars in that system um, because it's easier to move people from school to expulsion to prison. I get concerned when we just talk um, straight about abolishing anything. So, you know, we abolished state mental hospitals um, 20 something years ago. And when we did that, we did not have another plan in place. We did not have a vibrant community mental health system set up. And so what we have now is exactly what we see in Vermont. We have a lot of folks who are living on the streets. We have a lot of folks who are self-medicating and have significant addiction issues. And then we have a lot of folks with huge mental health challenges that are incarcerated. And it was a great idea to abolish um, these huge state mental hospitals that people were being warehoused in for their entire lives. But until we can 
create a better system, I think it's pretty dangerous to destroy the one that's there. And that same issue with prison abolition or mental health care abolition um, really points to the need that if we are going to create progressive change in Vermont or in the country, sometimes we need to double fund an issue. Sometimes we need to fund the upstream prevention at the same time that we are funding the downstream treatment and know that that might go on for 20 years before we're going to see sort of the cost and the human resource savings from that prevention work. And I think that's a really, really hard, that kind of long time frame is really hard to make into a soundbite. It's really hard to sell to people in the next two-year election cycle. And so we need to think of a way that our caucuses and our democratic parties and our community conversations can start holding legislators to those much longer time frames than the one-year, two-year soundbite cycle. Because otherwise, we're not going to be able to make the changes that we need to make. And lastly, how can folks get in touch with you and where can they find you online? I have the incredible gift of a very unusual name. And so I have a website that um, desperately needs some updating at emilycornheiser.org. It's E-M-I-L-I-E-K-O-R-N-H-E-I-S-E-R.org. But if you Google something like that, you generally find me. I'm on Facebook as that same Emily Kornheiser. I'm on Twitter as E.K. Kornheiser. That's for Emily Catherine, E.K. Kornheiser. And then on Instagram um, as Emily Kornheiser. So pretty easy to find me thanks to this last name that I long hated and now I'm quite happy to have. Thank you so much for coming on to the podcast today. And we hope to catch up with you in the future to hear about all the progress you've made. Absolutely. Thank you. It's been very fun to be super idealistic going into the session. And I'm hoping that I will still have this glowing idealism as I exit in May. Thanks for the great conversation. Yeah, of course. And lastly, to our listeners, make sure to follow Millennial Politics on social media, subscribe to the podcast on iTunes and tune into the Progressive Radio Network every week at 8pm Eastern to hear our newest episodes. Thanks for listening.